Hello again. I am back. Welcome back for another episode of The Council. This time, the long-awaited deep dive into District 7 City Councilor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson. And I think the reason I haven't done one of these in a while is because once I hit 7, I knew this was going to be the hardest one, mostly because I know and knew the least about Tanya than everyone else on the Boston City Council. A lot of that is because she really did not become what we'll call political until the COVID pandemic, and I believe she openly expressed that. And also, I have a very hard time identifying really where she falls on the political spectrum compared to the other city councilors. Because on the policy side, from everything that she ran on, she is very much, and I think this is correct, on the left side of the Boston City Council. According to her campaign page, she supports rent stabilization. She supports reallocating police funds to social services. She supports a fare-free MBTA system. And really, it's just the nature of being on the Boston City Council that a lot of those aren't put to the test the same way they are for maybe the Massachusetts State House, because the Boston City Council really doesn't have the power to do that type of stuff, except for, of course, the reallocation of police funds, and they're not touching Michelle Wu's budget. In fact, what really motivated me to finally do this episode was a quote I saw from Tanya, because Tanya is the chair of the Ways and Means for the Boston City Council, so basically just the chair over the budget. And in a Boston Globe article, she says, and I quote, I'm not interested, especially in not passing a budget for a woman of color who is mayor in her first term, in her first year of creating a budget. And that just seemed to me such an odd thing for an elected representative to say that their view on the budget has nothing to do with the budget itself. It has to do with who submitted it and trying to help Michelle get a win because she's a woman of color because it's her first year. And that was just very unsettling to me. And so I really did want to go back, look at her history, especially I find the people who came from the apolitical to the political to be the most interesting. You know, people like Ruth C, like Michelle, they've been political for a while, even before they ever ran for office. It was very much that was their career trajectory was to gain power in that way. And sometimes other people just come at it from a different angle, and Tanya came at it from a different angle. So let's go back, because she does have a fascinating and at some points tragic backstory. And so most notably, she was born in Cape Verde, and at the age of 10, she emigrated to Roxbury. And in fact, I believe her mother was here about six years previously. So from when Tanya was four until 10, she never saw her mother. And I think there's a quote in her retelling of the story that, you know, she didn't even know her mother's face. And growing up where she did, her native language was not English. She grew up speaking Cape Verdean Creole and Portuguese. And when she was 12, she received an award from then-Mayor Ray Flynn for an emergency delivery of her aunt's baby while at home. But clearly very intelligent. At age 13, she won a scholastic writing competition which then led to her receiving a job as a peer leader at the local community center. 
And that same year, she tells a story about how she paid $50 for a fake social security card so that she'd be able to collect her paychecks. Because at this point, she's not a U.S. citizen. And she talks about how she had to work multiple jobs throughout high school, was almost going to be expelled if it wasn't for one sympathetic teacher. When she was 19 years old, this is now 1998, she became pregnant with her first son. And she wasn't able to go to college because, again, she didn't have a green card. And during this time, they were living in the Academy Homes housing development and were eventually evicted from there because their family was just struggling to pay bills. And she was then unhoused for three weeks. Again, I believe this was while she was pregnant and was eventually able to seek help from a shelter that offered subsidized housing to undocumented people. In 2007, she had her driver's license suspended because the registry found out that she was undocumented. And I can't believe it's still 2022 when we don't have that law passed yet, meaning that she had to carry her child by bicycle to daycare in the winter. And she, throughout her time here, has faced multiple deportation proceedings. And from there, she went on to have a lot of different jobs and responsibilities, of course, on top of raising her child. So she works as a program manager at a woman's shelter, social worker, HIV prevention counselor. She then became a parent advocate with the Boston Public School System. She also has a very, I'll call it creative side. One of the roles that she had is she created what's called Noah's Advocate Productions, which appear to put on like musical theater fashion shows. It was a little bit hard for me to find more details on it, but they put on a series of shows. It does seem like she tried to kick this off, you know, basically in the COVID era, which of course is very difficult to run this type of thing. It was called Blood and Fashion Productions. In 2016, she taught herself how to sew from YouTube and then created her own clothing company called Couples Therapy Boutique. And in 2019 is when she officially became a U.S. citizen. And also during this time, she had another child. So she has two biological children and is a foster mom to 17 kids. To what extent or how many they live here in Boston, I honestly do not know. And I know that her two biological children, one of them is a U.S. Marine. And the other one she describes as an emerging young artist. Also... Her most recent position was as the executive director of the Boat in Geneva Main Streets, which gives support and promotes local small businesses. They give sometimes like low interest or zero percent interest micro loans. They help put on trainings, you know, how to navigate, how to the legal system, how to run a successful business, that type of stuff. And also probably another big part of her identity that she certainly speaks a lot about is she is a Sunni Muslim. And before we go into the election itself, of course, she was not just the first African immigrant elected the Boston City Council, but the first Muslim on our Boston City Council. And it appears that it, it wasn't until 2013 that we had our first Muslim elected official, I think, for any office across Massachusetts, which is mind boggling. But I saw that stat somewhere. She also talks a lot about the experiences of racism, and I'm sure Islamophobia that she experienced growing up. She first attended the Tynan Elementary School in South Boston, later the John D. O'Brien School of Mathematics and Science. 
And during that time, she said that the white students would bully her and throw spitballs at her. And I quote, the African-American kids were like, you're not really black. And the whites were like, you're definitely black. And so, again, because of her lived experience, being an African immigrant, growing up undocumented, homeless, seeing really the worst sides of our governmental institutions, of our culture, we do start to see how her political ideology starts to take shape. And now we can go to the election itself. So District 7, this became open because, of course, Kim Janey decided to run for mayor, which, I mean, given the spot, she should have because she should have been the front runner and just ran an atrocious campaign. But regardless, it was an open seat and it was an eight-way race to replace her. Now, District 7, it includes some small parts of the South End, some small parts of Fenway, but it is basically Roxbury. If you look at it on a map, it overlaps almost entirely. And Roxbury is one of Boston's poorest neighborhoods. The per capita income is roughly less than half of the citywide average. The life expectancy differential that many people quote, the 33-year difference between being rich and white in the Back Bay and being black and poor in Roxbury, again, comes from that area. And almost 90% of the residents are people of color and about a third are living in poverty, according to the most recent city data. That may not take into account the very new census. And as I mentioned, she really wasn't political from her own admission until really the pandemic. And then when she was also chosen to be the director of the boat in Geneva and Main Street. And she said that that experience, and I'm quoting now from an article from Sojourners, written by Josh Axelrod, um, March 4th of this year, that her experiences in social services and business development led her to believe that economic independence is the antidote to issues like substance abuse, health inequality, and disenfranchisement. Quoting from her now, I started connecting social determinants of health with systematic racism and lack of economic integration for blacks and people of color in Boston. Also, her cousin, former Massachusetts state rep, Evandro Cavallo, and he urged her to run, along with many other community members. And she received the support from Jetpack, run by friend of the show, and I'm saying that sincerely, uh, Muhammad Missouri, which is a nonprofit that helps to elect American Muslims through grassroots campaigns. But she decides to run, and she really instantly takes off. And again, this was a eight-person race, and she dominated in the preliminaries. She secured just about 27% of the total vote, with second place going to perennial candidate Roy Owens, and in he secured about 17% and in a very close 16.5%, which she almost wanted to recount, Angelina Camacho, but she ultimately decided not to do it. And the general was a blowout. Again, Roy Owens is a perennial candidate. He constantly runs. He is a right-wing lunatic. I don't think that's a medical phrase. So I hope people don't take that personally. Let me describe uh, that as a detriment. Um... Reading from a Bay State Banner article, 
a conservative, Owens espouses right-wing ideals and Christian family values to an extreme. During a somewhat rambling discussion with the banner on his ideas for the office, Owens mentioned rising taxes, unemployment, and the overall economic depression he sees unfolding in his district. His solution? Faith-based initiative programs. During his conversation with the banner, Owens also expressed some controversial ideology, including referring to the COVID-19 vaccine as quote-unquote experimental and making a derogatory statement equating Anderson's Muslim faith with Sharia law. So he rightfully just gets absolutely stomped. She wins every precinct by a large, large margin, ends up securing 73% of the vote. So goodbye, Roy Owens. I'm sure we will see you again. But Tanya takes it, and that really leads us up to where we are now. I'm going to add on her maiden speech at the end, because I think that's just fair, and it probably gives you some things that I'm just not able to pick up. In the first big vote, the vote that I used as a litmus test to see where people's heads at was the vote about restricting protests outside of public officials' houses. Basically, that's how I screened through all of these candidates, now counselors, who run on, you know, being to the left of Ed Flynn, Michael Flaherty, Aaron Murphy, Frank Baker. And a lot of them fell right in line where I thought they would be as being much more moderate or, I mean, I considered the restriction of protest to be right wing, to be right of moderate. And I listened to Tanya's comments on it. And very similar to, again, the comment that she made in The Globe, what she referenced was that this is not about Michelle's position, that you need to remove that from your mind and just view Michelle as you would any other individual who's being harmed by the harassment, the yelling, the calls, all of that. And again, I just find that so strikingly odd that no, she is an elective representative. There are much different protections and expectations of the people who are in power over us than there would be if she was just a regular person. Which is why, this is probably a tangent, what I thought would have been a much more creative solution for that whole protesting outside of Michelle's place was for one of her neighbors to do a civil suit, to do a harassment suit, because of how much they were being exposed to the noise and how much that was being detrimental to their way of life. That would have been, a, I think, drastically more effective method of getting those people away than creating an ordinance that restricts protests as a reaction to a specific protest against a specific candidate. That is absolutely horrible. And I was proven right almost immediately when there were protests outside of the Supreme Court justice's house after the leaked decision for Roe v. Wade. And again, props to Julia Mejia, props to Kendra Lara. I'm not necessarily giving high fives to Aaron Murphy and Frank Baker because I think they did it because they are Boston First Responder United counselors and if the ideological dynamics were reversed and Frank Baker explicitly said this when I guess somebody maybe egged his house or something, that he would have supported doing it for that, but because they, we didn't pass it for him, he's not going to pass it for Michelle. Again, just reflecting that his vote, and you can maybe say I'm being unfair to Aaron Murphy, but this is just my read of her. They did it because of the ideological group that was being targeted by this. But anyway... Again, Tanya was on the wrong side of that, and I think she kind of viewed this as Michelle as a woman of color being harassed by affluent, angry white people, and she's going to side with the woman of color in that. And again, from 
her history, from her life story, I fully understand why she is coming to that from an empathetic side. But you can't pass ordinances, policy, laws just based upon, in the moment, who do you like and who do you relate to? And, you know, as we gear up for what is going to be a very anticlimactic budget vote, I expect really everyone to vote yes, including Julia again, including Kendra. But I I have not spoken to either of them on that. I'm just kind of openly speculating. But, you know, we'll see what other decisions come about where Tanya ends up more supporting the Wu administration, not because of the policy side of the ideological side, but because she is rooting for a woman of color. We'll see. And I also think, you know, looking at her history, it points to why her focus is so much on economic independence of the individual, you know, pathways to home ownership, advancement for small businesses, so on and so forth, which is smaller measures that I am supportive of. However, I'm not going to move the needle because you just can't do it on scale. Not everyone can own a home. Not everyone can own a small business. Not the way that it's currently constructed. Which is why I'm a lot more partial to universal programs, universal solutions. I believe she has been on the right side whenever the Boston City Council does one of its resolutions in support of, you know, most notably against receivership of the Boston Public School System. She voted the correct way on that. And I'm sure if I were to go back for the other ones, she's been on the right side of those. But, you know, those don't have teeth to it. And those aren't in contrast or in opposition to what is in the interest politically of the Wu administration. So that's really what I'm curious about. That's really what I want to see. And I have to state again, I know the least about her. In turn, I don't think I've actually ever had a conversation with Tanya, where I, I think I've at least spoken with every other member of the Boston City Council. So I certainly have concerns, though you have to be a little optimistic when you do this stuff. So we'll see. We'll see as her political identity begins to take more and more shape, the more votes that we have, the more we're able to see, you know, what really moves her and motivates her. It's probably a little unfair that I'm just taking some selective quotes and then trying to match that to her history to get an understanding. But, you know, you got to work with the information you have. So again, I'm going to leave the outro will be Tanya's maiden speech. As always, thank you for listening. Support the show in any way that you can. If you haven't yet, five stars, write a quick review. If you missed the political news, you can catch me on TikTok or Instagram for your Boston local news in 60 seconds. We got two more of these to do, and then I'm sure I'll do a big episode on the budget, and that'll be, you know, what maybe June looks like, and who knows what will come. And so with that, take care, and as always, have a great rest of your day. Recognizes Councillor Anderson. Councillor Anderson, you have the floor. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, everyone here who participated. Before I um, begin, I just would like to start in proper. Um, saying uh, in my spiritual practice, uh, we say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Walhamdulillah wa Allahu Akbar. 
In the name of God, the most merciful, the most gracious. I'd like to begin by thanking the people who without their support, I wouldn't be here today. First, thank you to my children, Louis and Shakir. Louis, who too has chosen the path of service, becoming a United States Marine, yet still found the time to serve my campaign. And Shakir, my accomplished young artist, who canvassed blocks and kept me company on those extra long weekends. They have, began, they have given me unlimited love and purpose and have granted me immense grace and patience as I've taken this journey. I'd like to thank my loving husband, Tenzerius Swash Anderson, who is to be blamed for my striding about as though I, I bear the weight of a queen's crown. I want to thank my team. <laughs> Our dear D7 Chief of Staff, Joshua McFadden. Our Director of Budget and Operations, Amina Scott. Our Director of Communications and Community Relations, Kalamu Kieta. And finally, and certainly but not least, the woman who holds D7 Constituent Service down. Our Director of Constituent Service, my loving sister, Aline Mercury. I'd like to thank my Carvalho family who had my back through and through. I'd like to thank my campaign team for believing in me and our mission. Thank you, Mohammed Missouri, Calvin Feliciano, Noah Coolidge, Jaquetta Vincent, Steve McKenna, Rich Thuma, Patrick Keeney, Italo Fini. I'm grateful to Chief Brianna Malore for pushing me and convincing me to run for office. To my ace, Delita Rasha, a big shout out to all my friends and supporters who came out today. My cousin, Rita Fernandez. A shout out to my friend, Aziza Robinson, Joa DePina, Kristen Halbert, Tiffany Calgal, Lois Eliza, thank you so much for your advocacy and support. And of course, Tony Brewer. I'd like to thank my friend, Professor Lily Song, my spiritual brother, Saeed Abdul Karim, my auntie, Senator Diane Wilkerson, Representative Liz Miranda, my colleagues, and all those who endorsed my campaign, thank you to everyone who donated financially, who donated their time and their spirit to our campaign. And thank you to all the union reps and members. A special shout out to all the amazing youth canvassers, all 25 of them. My friends and my artist community, of course, a huge thank you to each and every single District 7 voter, those who voted for me and rocked with me from day one, and those who didn't vote for me, thank you for doing your part. To my dear loving mentor, Fadila Muhammad. who's always believed in me. Thank you for the time. You invested in me and my, and my development with great patience and love. To my beloved Uncle Lewis, although he is no longer with us, left me with a rich legacy of immeasurable strength and compassion. As a gay black man during the 80s, he was confronted with an unkind world. 
but he never flinched, and he fortified himself with love and honor, sacrificing his own happiness to ensure my future could be one day realized. He taught me everything about living with truth and justice and kindness, and I look forward to making him proud serving this community. Bear with me, y'all. <laughs> you know, when I was a little girl in the small West African country of Cape Verde, I never could have imagined I'd be here today talking to you. This is definitely a long way from former colonized trans transatlantic slave trade port to the heart of American democracy. But for my entire life, I have always been a dreamer and a fighter. And looking back, many of those dreams came to me as a child walking barefoot on her way to the market, carrying more than the responsibility of safely returning home with a loaf of bread to feed my entire family of 17 under one single roof. On those walks, I also carried with me dreams of a better life, of a life that was more than just surviving, but those dreams were limited by oppressive poverty because survival doesn't make room for much else but a mother's precipitated heartbeat in a motionless ocean, a brother's illusions of adaptability or a son's stomps to drumbeats for mercy. I never forget, I'll never forget the day my uncle Luis boarded me on that plane. Don't forget your brothers and sister, he pleaded. At the age of 10, I was in Boston Logan International Airport, afraid that the escalator would swallow me up, anxiously skimming my big brown eyes, hoping to recognize my mother after six long years. A woman tapped me on my shoulders and gently asked, do you remember me? I rushed into her arms with tears of joy, fear of unrequited love and guilt of being chosen for this moment over the siblings I left behind. Boston is a beautiful place full of diversity, with world-class education and first-class jobs. But we also know those opportunities aren't fairly distributed or made available to everyone, undocumented, black, and female. I was made afraid of both law enforcement and gangs. It was a scary place. And finding success meant finding safe spaces, finding supports, systems, that would nurture my potential and protect me from worse undercurrents of poverty, violence, and political apartheid. I owe much of the, my neighborhood where I found moms and aunties who embraced me and taught me what it meant to be a strong black woman living in America, navigating the perils of Boston. And although I was able to find that success due to no fault of their own, and despite their best efforts, countless others did not. And unfortunately, I see many of those same obstacles and barriers still with us today. During my campaign, I'd get invited to church or attend Friday Juma at mosques, and I'd see Boston. I see Boston everywhere because Boston is in my heart. And now, when the world looks at Boston City Hall, full of color and representation, suits and hijabs, Male and female, they'll see Boston too. The beauty and potential of humanity is all around us. And it's time we tap into the power to make Boston the hub of innovation, the standard of inclusion, and the pinnacle of equitable and fair economic opportunity. A place where no one is left behind. Our Boston, 
should weave camaraderie in the fabric of our constitution where our white brothers and sisters, our Asian, Atlantic, Brown, and LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters will merge in the struggle to evolve as one people. A place where there doesn't have to be just one successful black woman in this district, in this city, or in Congress, or in Senate, that we should look forward to a future where many successful black men thrive here and are allowed to flourish in their blackness or in their culture. That they are not expected to be a black person with only Anglo traditions. That we celebrate history, our truths, our knowledge, our skills, instead of embracing them to fit in. We have to hold Boston to the ideals of this country, that everyone has the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Black and brown Bostonians will never be able to achieve this as long as the shackles of slavery still exist with us 400 years later. If Boston can't within themselves change so that marginalized Bostonians have a better life there's no hope for people anywhere else in this country. As a matter of fact, we are all interconnected. Those with privilege have to open up their pockets and their hearts for progress to happen. If Boston is going to teach its full potential, reach its full potential, we have to act morally responsible in how we treat our own citizens. I'm talking about inconveniencing our kids and sending them to a culture of microaggression by busing them to rich suburban schools, forcing them to have dual lives. We have to ask ourselves, why is it necessary in 2022 to pay schools to take our children to get equality? Why in, is Boston incapable of doing this ourselves? I'm talking about a medical establishment that sends black mothers home to die because they consistently believe that black mothers can endure more pain. I'm talking about the displacement of our ethnic markets for supermarkets that don't fit our neighborhoods or budget. I'm talking about how they use mass incarceration to commoditize our black bodies, robbing us of our fathers, our sons, our husbands. I'm talking about systemically racist, bureaucratic delay tactics that keep us unhoused, allowing seaport luxury developers to avoid housing black and brown people. 1989, Academy Homes, where gun violence was at its peak, but it was my home. Project heat would dry my skin up, but this was my home. With little to eat, neighbors shared meals where we dealt with our quarrels, but no one dared to call Popo. Where Miss Elba told us stories about the old days in Puerto Rico, we'd get interrupted by drive-bys. Where food stamps were sold alongside stolen brand named Fashion, where the little girls and the old ladies took turns in seat to get their hair braided, where the corner store allowed layaways, where the boys rapped on summer stages with dreams to become stars, 
where friends got killed and where police beat us, where mothers died from crack, where the government left us to die. This is what we called home. Imagine a city where, after all of those experiences, you are afforded the opportunity to own your own home. This is why, as one of my first official duties, I chose to file an order for a hearing to explore a rent-to-own pilot program. As one, of, as one way to creating solutions to break the chains that bind us in cycles of oppression and poverty. As one way our city can redeem ourselves. Home is where you are nurtured. Home is where you learn to walk, to read, and it should feel safe at night. Home is the place you belong. Home is where your family unit is solidified and where your tribe heals. Home is where you are loved and nourished. Home is our sanctity. Our home is also our greatest source of wealth. So it's no surprise that Boston, the average area medium wealth for black families is just $8. Redlining discriminatory lending practices and predatory loans have robbed the American dream from countless black and brown Bostonians. When we talk about solving the housing crisis, it's not enough to just produce apartments to rent. We must help people to find a home. Our Boston should be the proving ground for the democratic experiment, where no matter where you begin, you have the opportunity to life of justice and liberty according to your own merit and determination. Some will say we are asking for too much that we're dreaming too big. They will construct new barriers and trash our names. They will try to stop us, tell us to slow down. And when they, think, when they can't think of anything else, they'll resort to old political tricks of obstruction. They'll say that there isn't enough money while lining their pockets of special interest and their cronies. But we won't stop. We won't give in and we won't lose. We may not win every battle, but we will win the war of, for a more just and equitable Boston. Don't believe those who say that we, it can't be done. I am living proof that impossible means nothing, that there's nothing we can't do. We are proof that the power of people is stronger than the power of politics. We can and we will. Thank you for trusting me with this mission. With God's will and your support, I won't let you down.